This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Sleeps with the Fishes edition. It's Wednesday, April 14th, 2021. On today's show, a cheeseball horror flick popped unexpectedly to the top of the Netflix rankings. We discuss what lies below and all its distinctive fishy aromas, but it's also an excuse to explore the mysteries of the algorithm. I think we'll talk a little bit about that. And then Worn Stories is a docuseries about items of clothing and how much and how deeply really they signify who we are. It's based on Emily Spivak's 2014 book. It's also on Netflix. And finally, the vault containing all the unreleased Prince music has at last been opened. We discussed this purported embarrassment of posthumous riches with Slate's own Carl Wilson. Joining me today is Dan Coyce. Dan is a longtime editor and writer at Slate. He's also the author of How to Be a Family and the co-author of The World Only Spins Forward. Dan, hey, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, Steve. And of course, Allegra Frank rejoins us. She's senior editor at Slate. Allegra, hey. Hello. All right. What lies below? It checks all the boxes. There's a remote house in the woods, a tense but loving mother-daughter relationship, a creepy man who interlopes on their lives. This is a very silly, uh, but I found weirdly engrossing schlock horror movie with maybe some alt overtones. Uh, it's a, I thought a classic, or I think everyone thought it was just a classic Netflix throwaway. And thanks to the weirdness known as the algorithm, it hit the top of the most watch list. And of course, that builds on itself. More people watch because it's there. And suddenly the thing is kind of a minor phenomenon. Like a lot of alt horror movies, I, I don't know if I can fully classify this as alt horror, but 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 it aspires, I think, to be that, and it builds on some of the morbid features of ordinary life. In this instance, your mom gets a hot boyfriend, and she can't see through his bullshit, but you do. You being Libby, the protagonist of the movie, whose age is never specified, I think, in order to keep some of the movie's genuine creepiness at bay. The new boyfriend is John, a hunk to end all hunks, but also something of a science nerd. And as the plot unfolds, we discover he's a lech and possibly some kind of merman. Libby must somehow rescue her totally besotted mom from this undersea hottie. The movie's written and directed by, improbably is actually written and directed by somebody, Braden R. Doomler. Let's listen to a clip. And just to set it up a little bit in the clip we're about to hear, Libby, the daughter, wakes up in the middle of the night only to discover her mom's boyfriend acting very strangely. I saw you, I saw you walk into the lake. What? Right here, I saw you walk into the lake towards this, like, light. I'm, I'm pretty dry. What? Libby, I should have mentioned this earlier, and I'm really sorry. 
I suffer from somnambulism. It's sleepwalking. I'm really sorry if I scared you. I feel like everything that I have done since you got here has been an absolute catastrophe. I have this way of... I just fuck everything up. Except for my research. It's the one time that I... I like, I work. Does that make sense? Look, please, come back inside. I gotta keep one of you healthy. I... Do you always lock the doors when you sleepwalk? Oh my, Allegra, let's start with you. You uh, you did something of an explainer on this movie. Explain it to me. What's going on here? <laughs> yeah, so this film, because it is worthy of the title of cinema, is, um, so it, it appeared on Netflix last Thursday, um, so about a week ago, um, and already had settled into like the, the top 10 trending list, which is, Netflix is like little marquee of the things you probably should be watching as they do declare themselves. And in my tiny explainer, I was just trying to understand why such a film would appear there, not just from the, the economic promotional standpoint, but like what is the appeal to the general audience? And it is really just that this is an incredibly amazingly dumb horror <laughs> like sexy horror fish movie um that is just so weirdly enjoyable to watch in how profound its stupidity is <laughs> um it's like really you know it's brief it's like 90 minutes yeah. it's uh very sexually tense there's a lot of hot white people in it doing hot white people things and it is it is just a, an absolute joy to watch for about 45 of its 90 minutes. I would love to hear what you guys think as someone who just was having a blast laughing at the terrible writing and the nonsense characters and the, uh, the overt and disturbing sexual tension. I, I want to hear what the men in the room think. <laughs> Dan, you're the man in the room. What did you think? I suffer from somnambulism. <laughs> <laughs> it's cre it's creepy how well you do what's his name trey tucker trey six-pack what's, what's his name uh he's i mean he is a sight to behold i'm fascinated by uh this notion that um that this is a, a pure enjoyable trash watch in part because i had always viewed that as a sort of exclusively gen x phenomenon like this idea that you would willingly enjoy cheesy schlocky crap with your friends uh while acknowledging how bad it is um had always seemed to me to be something that gen x had invented and so i'm pleased to see it uh spanning the new generation of people who are rocketing things to the top of the netflix top 10 list um i read an interview with Braden r dumbler uh, writer-director of What Lies Beneath, who's very proud of what has happened to his movie and and very proud that it has struck a chord. And Entertainment Weekly asked him, you know, what were your goals for this movie? And he said, honestly, I just wanted to get it on a Netflix and get it into the top 10 and be part of the conversation. And the idea that 
that that is a that's a filmmaking goal is fascinating to me and it does suggest as allegra notes that the movie is made to fulfill a very specific essentially algorithmic purpose it's meant to touch in its synopsis and in its still image of this gentleman rising from the sea uh his 12 pack uh, fully engorged um, to appeal to a certain kind of viewer at 10:45 at night, and it works perfectly. It's uh, it's a movie, as Allegra says, that is bad yet enjoyable. That flies by. Uh, it it's it's great for 45 of its 90 minutes, and those 45 <laughs> minutes can only take 30 minutes if you watch it at 1.25 speed. <laughs> This is the first thing I've ever been so happy to watch at 1.25 speed. Nice. I, I agree with every word of that. I will say that I watched it at regular speed, which made me wonder if I had accidentally clicked on 0.75 speed. <laughs> right. But, right. I, I, but Dan, the thing that you said this just strikes me as totally uncanny because it, 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 it explains my experience of it, which was I felt like I was back in the 90s somehow. Yeah. And mm. exactly watching single white female or or The Crush or any of these kind of good, bad or bad, good movies that came out around then that just had sort of all of the rhythmic comforts of genre. Like they set up, a, you know, they, they knew exactly how to set up a, a familiar set of expectations and then, and then deliver on them. And I basically thought this movie did it. It's, it's, it's obviously it's terrible. I mean, it's, it's, but it's just, it's deliciously terrible. Um, there are some things about it cinematically that I'll say that I actually did kind of admire, which is you have a little cabin in the woods, but he did a good job with the camera of making it seem sort of gothic and its hallways feel sort of elongated and as if it were both tiny and claustrophobic and yet a place with recesses that contained horrible mysteries, which, you know, it doesn't just happen, right? You don't just point a camera and suddenly that, you know, feeling enters yeah, the viewer. I agree with that. In fact, I thought at one point that they must have filmed the interior somewhere else, but there's no way they had the budget for that. Yeah. I mean, and and uh, the other thing I thought he was playing with at least a little bit were these moments where this very young actress playing the daughter Libby actually looks sort of like a 35-year-old woman. And there are these moments where the mother who claims she's 35, but it's really 42, actually looks like a 16-year-old girl. And this weird because because that plays into the one sort of really genuinely resonant and creepy thing about it, which is, you know, this archetypal situation where a single mom allows a man into the household and how how tantalizing and threatening that that is at the same time. And that's the kind of neurotic dread that this thing plays off of that pushes it a little in the direction, plausibly, of an alt-horror movie. But at the end of the day, it was just Allegra to me. It was just a comfortable old chew. I felt like it was 1992. I was drunk on, like, you know, Rheingold and watching, <laughs> laughing my ass off at how bad uh, the movie is with friends. I love the point you just made of, you know, the having this single man, especially an attractive man, like his main, uh, John is his name, the creepy, uh, sexy buff fish man. Um, he, you know, he infiltrates this relationship between mother and daughter that is so close, mm -hmm. just out of nowhere. And I found that to be, I mean, part of the enjoyment, because that is something I can find personally relatable as, you know, a 
young woman who does have a single mom or, you know, divorced parents. Thankfully, I never had to go through that because my mother and I share the belief that men are just awful. So we never had men coming into the house. Well, um, thank God John never showed up. <laughs> no, God, I can't even imagine my mother ever speaking to anyone like John um, in any capacity. But, uh, you know, just that fear, though, of having, you know, we have this safe relationship and having someone you know, intrude upon that is quite horrifying. I swear, every time, Liberty. What do you mean, every time? Every time I date someone, you come up with some BS. It was cute when you were a kid, but not anymore. I'm done putting my life on hold for your feelings. So there is something to be said about that. Like, I really did appreciate that this was a movie about a teen girl and her, her mother. Um, I thought that definitely helped make this a little more fun than, you know, if it was just like about sexy teens at a cabin or whatever, or like sexy co college co-eds um, doing sexy things. And then some horror happens during the sexy things. If I may point to perhaps the one flaw with What Lies Beneath, a movie we all universally agree is otherwise great. There was just not enough fucking in this movie. <laughs> mm. It was all uh, like, you know, just implied. There right. were a lot of fucking noises. Right. Lots of Mane Suvari moaning. Mm -hmm. And then there's one great scene of them having sex and the fish guy suddenly having weird alien skin uh, while they're banging. But I had this hypothesis with this movie that one reason the things hit the Netflix top 10 is that Americans in the year 2021 are desperate for softcore. That Hollywood has essentially abandoned sex as a storytelling device. Like all those movies you cite, Steve, from the 90s, mm -hmm. single white female and the crush and and the sort and every movie of their ilk, not to mention the sort of straight to cable skinamax movies of yore all used uh you know long slow softcore scenes as a narrative device not only because they attracted audiences in but because directors were interested in them and because they were cheap and filled up a lot of screen time um but that stuff isn't it's very rare that you see that in any kind of hollywood movie anymore and on the other side of the spectrum Hardcore is everywhere. It's all over the internet and seemingly inescapable. And it seems to me that there's like some middle ground that Netflix or some other streaming uh, network could very enjoyably exploit. But this movie didn't do it. And I wonder if even the prom like the the faintest hope of softcore, as evidenced in the promotional shot of John coming out of the water, a, a glistening is all it takes to get people to click on and watch a movie and then watch it at 1.25 speed, just hoping at some point they're going to get like four minutes of dimly lit Vaseline lensed grunting. <laughs> Dan, I have to say this is the most lyrically I've ever heard you wax <laughs> Utop utopian. Like all of We're, your utopian we, hopes now are pinned to. Undersea. We all, we all attach uh, real meaning and emotion to the things that were important to us as children, Steve, <laughs> including engorged 12 packs. I think that's a really interesting point, And it's something I've been thinking about a lot too, because 
there's this one as someone who's been paying a lot of attention to that top 10 list on Netflix. The thing that's been at the top of the list for like almost a month now is this show called Who Killed Sarah, which is just, you know, a, a really similarly stupid kind of thriller. You know, it's it's about a young woman, college girl has died and who has killed her. And the image I like get the it. I get it. right? Yeah, and yeah. the the picture, the thumbnail is just the the girl, I think Sarah, in a bikini, like right. hair wet. And then sometimes it's of the shirtless, sexy guy who may or may not have killed her or whatever. And I think probably it's appeal <laughs> to people who are clicking on it, and I doubt actually watching through it because I tried and it's just awful, is that it does have this promise of some lust, you know, like maybe outright sex, but mostly lust. Like there is this sort of sexual tension to indulge in, which has become quite attractive to the the home streamer again. All right. Well, I know it's hard to believe, but I think in our allotted 15 minutes, we've done justice to the Laventura of our time. And um, the movies, What Lies Below, I managed to get... Beneath. No, it's what it is. What lies what, what below? Lies below. Damn I, it! I was and I was about to make that joke. I got through the segment without calling it "What Lies Beneath." Sorry. Another schlock cancel me genre movie, but uh, <laughs> that I kind of love. But anyway, it's on Netflix. Uh, you know, maybe check it out, maybe not. But if you do, we'd love to hear what you thought of it. All right, moving on. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With twenty four seven U S based live customer service from Discover. Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right. Before we go any further, now is the moment in the program where we typically talk business. I usually throw to Dana. Uh, alas, she's not here, so I'll just throw it to myself. In Slate Plus today, we're going to talk about the intergenerational transmission of musical taste, which uh, is a subject near and dear to my heart. My kids inform my musical taste. I tried to form theirs. It's uh, both a love fest and a, and a, 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 a war zone. Um, but I think it's just a, it's a perennial question. How do parents' tastes uh, influence what uh, kids listen to and then what kids listen to as adults and how does that get passed on or not passed on. So anyway, Slate Plus members can look forward to hearing that segment later in the show. If you're not a Slate Plus member, however, I would urge you to sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. I can honestly say this. There's something freeform and very fun about the Plus segments that uh, they have their own character. They draw upon the familiar character of the show, but they've got a kind of uh, verve and fun to them. It's only a dollar for your first month, and members get access to ad-free podcasts and exclusive Plus-only content, such as today's bonus segment. Again, you can sign up at slate.com slash culture plus. And if you're already a Slate Plus member and there's a topic or question that you want us to discuss in the future segment, send us uh, the topic a suggestion by email. We love them. Believe me, we need more such suggestions, and they've been extremely, extremely good. So you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, if you're already a subscriber, thank you so much for supporting what we do. All right, moving on.
Worn Stories began as a book, a compendium of stories from various contributors about items of clothing that had particular significance to them. The contributors included Greta Gerwig and one of this program's all-time uh, faves, Simon Doonan. Now it's a docuseries on Netflix. We tend to think of clothing in either purely utilitarian terms, this thing that we need to wear in order to stay warm or stay decent, to hide our nakedness, or in purely frivolous terms, a series of shallow concessions to fashion. But as Emily Spivak has said, and she's also a producer on the program, she said, clothing carries so much memory. It's so tactile. It really absorbs experiences. It plays a significant role in reminding us of the people who we care about. And what I love about that quote is that it's so other directed. It's we think of clothing maybe as 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 somehow narcissistic or self-centered, but the, the show gets it how uh, it incorporates others into our own uh, conception of ourselves. Each episode revolves around a few people telling the stories behind an item of clothing. So for example, a pair of Crocs, yes, a leather cod piece, a designer coat, uh, and gets at how subcultures create their sense of community through clothing items. All right, in the clip we're about to hear, a uh, former sax player for Tina Turner talks about an item very near and dear to his heart. Never do a gig without a cod piece. Gives you that little extra oomph. I'm not even sure I can play the saxophone without this. I got that cod piece from Tina Turner. We were in Berlin. She just happened by this S&M store, and she looked in the window, there was a cod piece, and she said, Timmy. And she went in, she bought it, she gave it to me at the sound check. I put it on, she said, now that's it. That's what I want on my stage. Tina used to say to me all the time, never forget, you're the tough guy. And I, I've never been in a fight in my life. Certainly the last thing I am is a tough guy. But she just meant this is the part that I want you to play on my stage. Dan, you're you're the tough guy here. What'd you make of uh what'd you make of the show? Uh I've been in numerous fights in my life, obviously. <laughs> um I found it very sweet this show and also a, a little bit all over the place and i think what i found uneven about it has to do with the format change that this material underwent on its way to the screen um you know as you said the the book that it started as is essentially a collection of personal essays right it's it's these people telling these stories um, about behind these articles of clothing and it gives them the, the, the microphone essentially, and allows them to interpret those stories however they want. And the show has turned that on maybe 90 degrees into essentially a podcast. I mean, essentially this show is a podcast in video form, right? It's a podcast, except for that you have to see the things that the podcast is about. So they put it on TV. It's very dependent on voices. It delivers its narrative through these voices, but, but it's pace, it's editing pace is a podcast's pace and the visuals in the show are fine, but haphazard at best. And so to me, it meant that 
you lead me to expect that there's going to be some kind of editorial interpretation given to this material and and it doesn't deliver that instead it just has the codpiece guy sort of waxing poetic and so i found it a little bit unsatisfying if i found myself craving um some kind of real author's angle on this material to contextualize it a little bit more than sort of the the this american lifestyle oh the theme emerges over the course of the the three different stories and at the end i guess we've looked at this theme from three different angles and so i found it a little bit unsatisfying mm. allegra i know you love you uh, love the show you endorsed it <laughs> I think, last week or the week before uh defend it yeah i mean i i respect dan coyce's take and dan coyce very much however the notion that this is analogous to a podcast or something that is primarily, you know, about the the stories themselves, the storytelling, I, I feel as though this really benefited from the visual medium. I actually found this to be something that I thought I would enjoy more as a television show versus the books. I've, I've never read the books, although I'm certainly intrigued now because I really did appreciate actually seeing the clothes, obviously, but also how the show reimagines these stories in different ways. There's a lot of use of animation, there's puppetry, there's these reenactments of the stories that are being told. That really bolstered my own investment in these stories and my own imagination of my my clothing, my attachments to it, it really pushed me to reconsider how I relate to my clothes um, mm -hmm. in these more fun and imaginative ways. So, you know, having this reenactment of these two women going on this New York City chase for a, a beloved coat and seeing that animated in this really beautiful, fun way is just an entertaining watch. It's just a good watch. It's something that resonated with me more than I think just the actual text or the audio, the hearing the story would. I come out somewhere between the two of you, it sounds like. Um, Dan, it reminded me maybe of an evening at the moth with a, a yeah. guiding theme to it. So, you know, each individual, each individual story is only as strong as it's, it's, it's individual storyteller. Um, and uh, so I thought the first episode I could take or leave. I thought the second episode was absolutely smashing. It started to really get through to me. And uh, I liked its use of the power of synecdoche, uh, which, you know, is where the part and the whole interact with one another and reinforce one another reciprocally. And I, I feel like clothing does that very powerfully. And, and that was sort of the overall framing device. It's not simply, oh, I love this, you know, codpiece or coat or, or you know, whatever. It really was about the kind of deep, and I say this very positively, f sort of primitively fetishistic value we attach to certain things that suddenly take on this anecdotal power uh, as a way of describing sort of our, our whole way of being in the world. Like I believed when the stories landed for me, I believed that that connection was was being made. It, it, land, it totally landed with me. And the only other thing I'll say quickly Allegra is, I thought there was a powerful anti-snob appeal to this, mm -hmm. which I think, you know what I mean? It's like this, there's, the, without being condescending at all, the show went out of its way to not be about beautiful people in their beautiful clothes. And I think they really delivered on that 
uh, self-imposed mandate and the show is better for it. I want to ask you guys about a segment that struck me particularly as by far the strongest segment of any of the ones that I watched. And I didn't watch the whole series, but the, but there's a, one of the three stories that's told in episode two is about Memorial t-shirts. It's uh, the two characters in it are a t-shirt maker in Philly um, who's, you know, who's an airbrusher, a professional airbrusher and a mom who comes into him to get him to make one of those airbrush memorial t-shirts for her son who was shot and killed a couple of years ago. I have a few pictures I couldn't really pick. Uh, The reason people were coming to me in the city of Philadelphia was usually murder. What I would like to do is do kind of a montage, Mm -hmm. um, and that's where we're going to put the pictures of your favorite pictures of him on the shirt celebrating his life because that's what we really need to to remember. I found this segment very moving and and a really great short documentary. It was the one um, piece where I felt like it, it did really benefit, to me at least, by being on TV because it presented us with scenes um, and it didn't attempt to recreate those scenes through artist renderings, you know, as Allegra mentioned, some of those artist renderings and the other stories I found sweet. Some of them I found very twee. I usually didn't (laughs) find them to really contribute that much to my understanding of the stories, but here we, we had scenes. We got to see the woman come into the store and make this request and bring in her photos of her son and then we also got both of them reflecting on what the shirt means to them. The the guy who makes the shirts reflecting on what it means to him that this has become most of his business, something that he never envisioned when he first learned airbrushing, you know, 20 years ago. And the woman reflecting on what it means to her to wear this, as Steve pointed out, it, pointed out you know, synecdical uh, item that for her stands in not only for her son, but for the the good memory she has of raising that son. I found that very moving. And in, in some ways to me, I think how good that segment was spoiled the show a little bit for me because, because it made the segments where they don't connect those dots, where they don't um, find the scenes or, or find people who are, who are really good talking even spontaneously about their emotions and about these articles of clothing, it made those just seem a lot more basic. Like after that, the story of the woman and her cousin, like chasing a coat through the streets of Manhattan, I just found extremely tedious. It does feel a bit jarring to have that kind of balance, you know, going from one to the other in the same episode. But I think that, you know, it doesn't, not everything about, clothing or just any kind of topic like this, any cultural topic needs to be so weighty. (laughs) Like obviously existing in the same show could have some kind of whiplash effect to it. But I appreciated that, you know, like I don't have to reflect upon clothing just because, oh, this is what I wore when I broke up with someone. Um, It can just be something silly, like I have this Pokemon t-shirt that I bought because I waited for (laughs) six hours in line to buy it, and I don't even really like it that much, but you know, it was a stupid six-hour day where I made some random friends in line, and that's like not as important a story in my life or anyone else's, but it's still a story. 
um, and a, f- a fun and memorable one for me. So I, I appreciated that diversity of uh, life experiences reflected. Okay, the phone's ringing, Dan. You pick it up. Hello, it's the producers calling from uh, the Netflix show. Warren Stories, we love your work on the Slate Culture Gap Fest. We weren't familiar with you otherwise, but you're, you're so good on that program. What, what article of clothing would you like to talk about when you come on our show and do, the, do this segment for us? This is me revealing myself at my most daddest, but I think it would be a pair of cargo shorts. Like a, this, <laughs> this pair of like cargo capris. They're essentially the only pants I wore on our year around the world. And so they are so, and the pockets of them have held every thing that I had to hold on that trip. And so they're so intimately tied up to me with this particular 10 year period of my life and my family's life that I can't separate them from that. In fact, because you can't separate the pants from me. Cannot separate the pants from the man. That is mythic. <laughs> that is wonderful. Allegra, phone's ringing. Pick it up. It's the producers calling. What article of clothing are you going to do on your uh, your spot on the show? Um, I think that I have this dress that I bought. Uh, boy, I think sophomore or junior year of college, which you know, for me it was, <laughs> feels like a long time ago, but it was probably like seven years stick ago. Sticking the dagger. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thanks for that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was, it was, you know, I've had it for almost closer to a decade now. That's something. And, uh, you know, as a woman in America, I've always struggled to find clothes that I felt, you know, looked good on me and just reckoning with how I look, et cetera, et cetera, all that fun stuff. And I remember this dress buying it on sale, just kind of stumbling upon it in the store and really loving it. Like as soon as I put it on, I was like, this is the kind of thing I've always wanted to wear. And it looks the way I've always wanted clothing to look on me. And I want to wear this every day. You know, it was was really the first time I'd had that kind of reaction to something that was not just comfortable, but well-fitting as someone who would often hide um, in clothing. So I still have it and I still wear it. It's, I don't, I don't think I've been growing, but maybe it's been shrinking or something because it's a little short now. Um, But I will always hold on to this shrinking and shrinking, shortening and shortening dress for that memory. That's so funny. Mine is a shrinking and shrinking, shortening and shortening story too. Very quickly, when I was in Finland, in Helsinki, Finland, 15, 20 years ago, I can't remember, uh, doing a travel piece, I never buy clothing, uh, rarely buy clothing, never buy fashionable clothing, but I was in a store and I just saw the sweater and it spoke to me, sort of a bulky, very fenno scandian looking sweater item you know looked like it had just sort of popped directly off a sheep in the Faroe islands and whatever so i just rang it up brought it home loved it wore it wore it and wore it and wore it but then this thing happened over the years which is as it got sort of casually mixed up in the laundry and sent through the wash which of course it was never ever designed to do it started to shrink as I slowly got fatter and fatter, and I got like more and more of a dad bod, as the midriff rose on this, 
sweater. And so it became fully a house sweater. I mean, even I knew that it would be completely shameful to wear this thing in public, but it turns out that our many house guests over the years find this item incredibly funny for how misshapen it makes me look when I wear it. And so <laughs> you in a crop top finished sweater, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of turned into a crop top and there's just this like uh, you know, anyway, I mean, you know, it, it say no more. I think our listeners may have the visual, but it's just I I didn't realize how funny people found it, so now I kind of wear it for effect. Uh and it never fails to satisfy. All right, well, it's Warren Stories. It's on Netflix. Uh, We'd love to hear from you guys. Send us an email. Tell us about, like, you know, your stories about clothes and uh, what you think of the show. Okay, moving on. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. All right, let's uh, start this segment somewhat untraditionally. Dan, you want to take it away here? Dig, if you will, a picture. <laughs> Steve <laughs> Metcalf on the Culture Gab Fest. Oh, my God. And now can you explain why that's so unbelievably funny we chose this segment based in part on the promise of a 60 minute segment uh coming this past sunday about prince's estate and the vault and this new song and the new album it presages and that segment began with john wertime the uh segment reporter saying with a straight face directly to the camera dig if you will the picture <laughs> so good. God, that's good. That's I, I like mean, that's 75 Emmys right there coming at you in stereo. I, I will pay cash monies, Bitcoin to whoever can tell me how to make that my ringtone. <laughs> so email the show. All right, Carl, dig if you will the picture. We're joined by Carl Wilson, of course, Slate's music critic, to talk about Prince. We have arrived at the five-year anniversary of his uh, untimely death when he died. I was very surprised to find out 60 Minutes informed me he was selling more records than any living artist at the time of his death. Wow. It's also, isn't that amazing? Also true is that there is an estimated 8,000 songs uh, in a vault, which is literally a vault. It's underneath Paisley Park, the recording studio slash home of Prince, filled with uh, these unpublished songs. So you put those two things together, there's a pretty big incentive to crack open the vault. His estate has finally done that. They're beginning to release material from Legendary said vault. They started this past week with a song, Welcome to America. There was then a 60-minute segment in which they previewed pieces of a full album, which will be out in July. Uh, Carl, before I start with you, let's listen to the song, Welcome to America. Welcome to America. Where everything and nothing that Google says is hip. We will not raise your taxes. Read our lips. Welcome to America. Welcome to the big show. To America. Welcome to America. Except inside America, that's the only place I know. To America. Transformation. 
Carl, welcome back. Great to have you back. So good to be here. Um, welcome to the Gab Fest. <laughs> uh, let's start. Let's start there. What do you make of this track? I'm I'm pretty into it. Um, you know, the, this album um, is basically the first time. It's it's far from the first stuff from the vault that's being released, but it's what distinguishes it. It's the first full album, full sort of lost album that's be coming out. And this album is is for, was recorded somewhere in 2010, uh, maybe some of it in 2011. We're not we don't have the details on that yet, but um, it definitely feels very alive and current, even though it's like an 11 year old album. And it was written in the kind of aftermath of the of the 2008 financial collapse, and those are the kinds of reference points that you're hearing in it. But but definitely, it, a lot of it feels you know there's this section towards the end where they sing about America as the land of the slave and it certainly feels like it still connects to current political things and it sounds funky the music reminds me more than anything of the coup which is Boots Riley's uh, long-running hip-hop band, um, and that had this kind of funkadelic mixed with kind of spoken word political diatribes. Well, I spoke the name of the Lord in vain, in gunpowder and flame, and I vomited slang and porcelain and inclined to champagne. And that's the sort of vibe I get from that, and I, I feel it. Hmm. Is this a mode that he worked in often, kind of political anger? It's not what I think most of us associate with Prince's music or image. It bubbled up here and there, and it would sometimes be political anger kind of channeled through religious righteousness often from the 90s on. Um, and I think there are tracks on this album that are going to strike that note um, as well. Um, but yeah, it was defi- it's definitely not one of the most familiar um, Prince modes. And so, and so it, it feels distinctive on that level and maybe a reason why um, this body of material was something that felt particularly relevant to, to kind of call from the vaults at this point. I should say that I think that uh, 60 Minutes 8,000 estimate is a widely disputed one. We know that there's thousands of, of individual items mm-hmm. in the vaults, but we don't know how many of those things are unheard songs or radically different versions of songs we know. That's All of that stuff is still emerging, and, and people are still going through that stuff. You know, the Prince Estate is really... Um, incredibly contested still and the process has been really fraught i i struggle with the whole concept of posthumous releases just because i think it's like i i feel like maybe that's unfair to say because there are so many artists who die well before their time including obviously prince but i often feel like it's this weird cash grab situation and I don't know if that's the case here. It doesn't seem like it is. Although I was intrigued. I read that, you know, Welcome to America was the name of one of his past tours many years ago before he died. So I, I had to wonder, I mean, was there a reason that this was locked up in the vault as opposed to released both the, the song and the album? Yeah, well, I... I think that the question you're raising is a really active and alive one when it comes to Prince. I mean, 
you know, this is one of many, many projects over the course of his lifetime that got kind of discarded and relegated to the vaults with nobody really quite understanding why, except that Prince had moved on. You know, famously, um, Prince as an artist basically was a incredible production machine who was constantly, constantly, constantly making and recording music um, at a rate that nobody could keep up with, whether his bandmates or his record labels, which is part of how he ended up in disputes with them. And unfortunately, you know, he'd said things vaguely along the way about how eventually there would be a place for these things from the vaults to find the light of day and that there would be a plan and, and, you know, he he talked about them being kind of a keepsake for his children, which he didn't end up having. And um, at the same time, he was incredibly controlling and um, often furious about the way that in any time he found his music misused or um, being released without his permission. All of these things were, were incredibly personal and political causes to him on many levels. So this whole project does happen in this kind of ambivalent light because that plan never got made and we never ha we don't have any record of what Prince's actual wishes for his legacy on this level would have been. Right. And there's such a interesting and complicated history of ignoring the wishes of uh, authors. I mean, the most famous example being we would not know the name Franz Kafka today had his very good friend and literary executor, Max Broad, not completely ignored Kafka's totally explicit <laughs> instructions to allow them to burn and be lost forever to oblivion and broad like I think almost I believe physically this is the myth at least broad like fished things out of the fireplace in order to preserve them and at a certain point you just you have to come out on the side of Max broad I mean you know you know um, but another comparison I not to make you know boneheaded literary comparisons but I thought another one was sort of weirdly apt which is like J.D. Salinger, Prince was a person who wanted to withdraw, substantially withdraw from society and live substantially in his own world, and thereby mostly in his own head, who remained productive even after that withdrawal had happened. And like Prince, you know, Salinger is reputed to have these astonishing, you know, troves of unpublished material, and there's this hunger for more. Um and I just sometimes wonder, Carl, if that hunger for more, especially from someone who was somewhat withdrawn and living in their own, progressively more and more in their own creative head, whether we're just bound to be sort of disappointed. I have to confess, I don't find much life or power in this song. Um, it could be the teaser to an album that's just caustic and relevant and funky and beautiful, right? But it, to me, as a teaser... This my heart sinks a little bit. I want there to be more great Prince music, but I'm not yet convinced that there's going to be. Yeah, I mean, there's. It's complicated. It kind of depends what light you're listening to yeah. <laughs> it in, right? Yeah. Like, I think we can say something similar about most of what Prince put out in the last twenty years of his life. Um, so, the material, real like there, there was a vitality to the first decade and a half of his material that really was never or only rarely track by track um, recaptured in the studio recordings that he made later. And so I'm kind of listening to this in that context. Interesting. Um, yes. And by those standards, I feel like it measures up to the sort of better quarter of those things. But 
in the light of the sort of Salinger Kafka examples, the difficulty with Prince is that there already is so much, right? Mm-hmm. Like Prince, unlike right. Salinger, this is not a Salinger situation. <laughs> Kafka, you know, yeah. like Prince put up, Prince already put out forty albums, <laughs> you know, and so and so the 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 scarcity problem is not exactly. The problem, the scarcity of material from his peak period, which has been addressed in these deluxe reissues the past few years, um, is a little more exciting to me to get more material from that time. But I do think, you know, the other example that often comes to mind when we talk about these things with musicians specifically, and a particularly salient one talking about Prince, is Jimi Hendrix, whose Mm -hmm. every last recorded grunt and like, you know, tuning up of his guitar over the 20 years after his death got put out as albums. And I think that really did kind of um, put a stain on his legacy and, and, and really did reflect an exploitation of the material that was available. And so, you know, there's, I feel like there's, between Max Broad and and the people who were in charge of those Jimi <laughs> Hendrix, Hendrix issues, yeah. they know that we're probably somewhere in between here. And the question is, the, how far to which end will we end up feeling like we were? I mean, it is pretty astonishing that 20 plus years of very uneven albums in no way took the shine off of Prince's peak period. Mm -hmm. Like there's no one who stopped loving everything Prince made from 1977 to 1994 because of everything that came after. And so it's totally possible that the release of, I think, legitimately bad songs like this one from the vaults are <laughs> won't do anything to his image but then i think of someone like you know let's just say a hypothetical young person a few years out of college mm. who who doesn't know any of prince's music um and who <laughs> hears this and and surely has to think like who is this cranky old man saying things like hook up later at the ipad uh, <laughs> over a like lukewarm p-funk groove what why would i ever want to listen to anything else by this person and so it does make me slightly nervous that that too much of this material is going to hendrixify prince at least for some future generation but Allegra, yeah. does such a person exist? I know, you're being so <laughs> fanciful, Dan. Yeah. You know, nobody doesn't know and already love Prince, right, Allegra? How could that have happened? How? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. The whole Prince train somehow completely missed me. It's weird because I remember when he died, my mom like would not stop texting the family group chat about her her depression, her, <laughs> her long sadness about it, and my dad, too, but... Somehow, I don't know, like, and I I feel like an oddity, honestly. I think a lot of people did grow up with parents who loved Prince, but there was something perhaps about his raw sexuality or, you know, my, my knowledge of him was mostly like the whole changing his name to a symbol thing in the nineties. You know, I always found him to be sort of a, a cryptic figure as opposed to, you know, just a, cherished musician which is completely something i am sad to admit and find an unfortunate lack in my music knowledge and education but i don't think that this song this these releases will necessarily taint or even characterize prince going forward because i think there will be so many people like you guys who will be like no 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 this is not 
this is not the real stuff. Um, you Nothing know, like inspires young people like old guys going, no, 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 you got <laughs> yeah. it. Say, yes. hey, oh my yeah, god. Well, <laughs> I, mean, yeah. I mean, I think about like, you know, obviously Tupac, for example, very different. But you know, he has he's had posthumous releases, and I don't think pe- young people are like, oh, that's the Tupac stuff, gross. Like, all, more often than not, it's going to just encourage people to really cherish the the other stuff, but. For fans, I can see it really diluting the legacy, um, which is never fun. I, I can't resist this OK Boomer moment. Like, can we create a, uh, a crowdsourced Spotify playlist of the best Prince tracks in order to f- force this on Allegra? <laughs> we're sorry, Allegra, but also we're so jealous that you finally get to hear this music for the first time. I'm excited. Yeah, I know, like... Now I guess I know like three Prince songs, <laughs> so I'm excited to be be learned. All right, all right, very good. All right, well, Carl, as always, it's just a total pleasure to have you back on the show, and let's please do this again soon. Absolutely, let's chat soon. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and six one since that matters, and what do I even say other than hey? Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. All right, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse. Dan, what do you have? Uh, I am endorsing a book that I took the occasion to reread recently because Larry McMurtry died in March. Um, the, the beloved and extremely prolific author, in some ways the prince of the American novel, uh, died in March, and I took the occasion to revisit one of my favorite novels of all time, which is Lonesome Dove. Mm. Uh, I will be honest about Larry McMurtry, like Prince, he produced a lot of material and like Prince, it's often all over the place. Um, Even, you know, a a novel with the name brand appeal of Terms of Endearment is not nearly as good as the movie of Terms of Endearment. But Lonesome Dove is like, you know, it's like Purple Rain or 1999. He just absolutely 100% nailed it. Doing everything that he does well uh, at, at its best. And he does those things better than anyone else. Um, I just think of that book as like the perfect pop epic. It is funnier than anyone else's books and it's more romantic than anyone else's books. And it's 800 pages and everyone I know who's ever read it reads it in like three days. You just glide through it effortlessly. Um, I just love it very much. I, I reread it in no time flat and I could pick it up again next week and I would love it all over again. So if you haven't read Lonesome Dove, I'm going to tell you to read Lonesome Dove. And if you read it and remember it fondly, I'm going to tell you to reread it because you will have the greatest time. Oh, that is a great recommendation. I have never read a Larry McMurtry novel. Read Lonesome Dove and then you can decide if you want to read anything else. Uh, I may do. 
All right, uh, Allegra, what do you have? So um, after my last after last week's endorsement, this week got torn apart. I'm going to try again. <laughs> um, so please have me back to. I guess defend defend it again. (laughs) Um, But I think I have a winner here. So an album that I've been a fan of as of late is um, Deacon. It's called Deacon by Serpent with Feet. It is, I believe his second album just came out in late March and it is fantastic. He has this beautiful, just a beautiful voice. You know, he's one of those, R&B singers, R&B adjacent, who is the master of the the falsetto. And every song just has this sort of sweeping kind of feeling to it of just puncturing you emotionally. Um, He's just a a hopeless romantic. um, And it's really striking. It's resonant. And there's one song on it, though, that is just actually a plain, plain ass bop called um same size shoe and it's a just a sort of straightforward love song of me and my boo have the same size shoe it is not only you know not only just a really catchy you know kind of love song with a great beat but also it's a really open and proud not even proud it's just he he is a queer man in a relationship with a man talking about it very openly um and i it's just something that still feels kind of rare you know to have a queer artist just talk about their relationships without it being about you know the st- the stigma that is still around queer relationships in, in you know, many ways. So for him to talk about it in these terms, you know, like my, me and my boo, we do not have the same size shoe, right? So for him to talk about it of like, this is one of the things I love about my boyfriend is just something I find really, really refreshing, I think. Um, but it's also just, you know, just a really fabulous song with this awesome sort of... Um, marching beat to it so overall the whole album is great and just sort of a celebration of love and also a tread of some heartbreak um but i i recommend the whole thing but that song in particular and just say the name of the artist on the album again yeah it, the album is deacon by serpent with feet awesome uh, i cannot wait to check it out all right this week i'm gonna endorse both an essay and the essayist who wrote it. The essay is in the New York Review of Books. It's called Averted Intimacies, and it's by Elaine Blair, who I'm embarrassed to say, I'm positive I've noted her byline in the past. She's just a tremendously gifted essayist, but it really finally seared itself in my memory uh, and my brain this time. This is a wonderful essay about a writer named Betty Howland, who, as the subhead of the article says, Betty Howland's work is part of a recent wave of reissues that test the reach of the literary canon. And I can hear your eyes glazing over already because you (laughs) think you know exactly what this essay is going to be. It's going to be, you know, there was a, a patriarchal and I don't say this sarcastically, there was a patriarchal reading list or a canon that was in many ways Eurocentric and male. It excluded all kinds of people, and now we're expanding the canon. This person is a wonderful writer. You should read her. 
the takeaway of the article is actually you shouldn't read her. And and but what's remarkable, there are two things that I found most remarkable about the essay. The first is that it's really in its covert way a meditation on the relationship between how much there is to read and how little time there is to read it, right? So many books and only one life. But not in an announced way, and 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 also in such a more subtle and deep way than that simple mathematical equation. It, it's really a meditation on death, right? On the finitude of one's own life, and that spending time is always exactly that. It is spending the allotted time, uh, and 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 then as a second feature of the essay. Um, as part of the first thing that I like about it is that it's also a meditation on oblivion and what it means for something to have, like her work was literally going into the pulper. I mean, it was so close to total oblivion, what it means to rescue it and what that means in relation to the fact that had it not been rescued, this person would be disappeared completely from common memory. Like would the non-existence would have been Reachieved by by this person after living a human life devoted to writing, and um, what that rescuing means. And so, the first thing I like about the essay is is that it's really just an essay about death that never says that. It doesn't have an ounce of pretension to it, which leads into the second thing I love about the essay, which is as a writer, you're always struggling to say something unexpected while not sounding pretentious, and that target is tiny and shifting, right? And I. There are some writers who you, their pyrotechnics amaze you, you envy their way with the language, they have a virtuosity that you admire. And then there's another kind of writer that I admire so much more and so much more deeply, which is no surprise words, no no gimmick words, no no big words, no $10 words, no fancy sentence constructions, nothing, nothing, all of it is just quiet and familiar and and perfect somehow. And you read and reread it and you're like, why? Why is this so much fucking better than what I can do without seeming to crack a sweat? It's just a beautifully elegant essay and I can't recommend it highly enough. It's called Averted Intimacies by uh, Elaine Blair. I would like to second this recommendation. Uh, I tweeted this essay a couple of days ago. I absolutely love it. And I absolutely love Elaine Blair. Um, I've edited her a couple of times at Slate and in fact, I hadn't, you know, I ha- I haven't edited book reviews at Slate for a couple of years, and so I haven't had the chance to work with Elaine for a couple of years. But I love this essay so much that I emailed her out of the blue to just tell her how much I loved it. <laughs> I'm going to follow your email to Elaine Blair with one of my own. I mean, just it's just, yeah, wonderful piece of writing. Allegra, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Thank you. It was so fun. It's always fun. Yeah, it was really fun, Dan. This was a good one. It was really great to talk to you. My pleasure. You will find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our intro music is from the wonderful composer Nick Rattel. Our producer is Cameron Drews. Our production assistant is Rachel Allen. For Dan Coyce and Allegra Frank, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon. Hold up. 